All right, so we are taking a break from Daniel. You can see behind me. We're going to be doing something a little bit different for the next month or so. Uh, For the next month, we're going to be looking at our purpose statement. Our purpose statement is to exalt God, equip believers, and evangelize the lost. So today and next week, we'll be looking at the purpose statement. January 14th, I will not be here. I'm going to be on the retreat with all of our students. So Dan Winberg will be here, and he'll be filling the pulpit. Uh, But then on January 21st, I will be back, and we will finish this brief series on our purpose statement, and we will get back to the book of Daniel. When we crafted our purpose statement, we didn't just throw out a bunch of words and pick the nicest sounding church words we could think of because we need to have a purpose statement. Uh, we, We chose this purpose statement because we believe that these are the primary purposes for any local church. And that's what we're going to be studying, right? What does it mean to exalt God? Why did he call us to equip one another? And why has he called us to evangelize the lost? But in broad strokes, this is why Jesus redeemed his church. This is why the church was created, to exalt his name, equip, and evangelize. And as we progress as a church, this is the lens that we evaluate our ministries through. This is why we've been a little bit slower to maybe add some new ministries or add some new things or make some changes that you felt like maybe we should be making. We're a little bit slower because we want to evaluate everything we do as a church through this lens. Does this succeed in exalting, equipping, or evangelizing? And not only does it do those things, but is it the most effective way to do those things? That's our goal. So everything that we do is viewed through this lens. Exalt, equip, evangelize. And my goal as long as the Lord allows me to serve as a lead pastor here, is to keep this purpose statement in front of you. Right? This will keep us going in the right direction. If we lose sight of these three things, we are failing as a church. These three purposes need to direct the life and ministry of our church. So it's necessary then that every so often we pause and take some time to remember what our purpose is, to remember why we gather on Sundays to worship, and why we get together in the first place. Today, we are going to be in Ephesians 1, and we are looking at what God's Word has to say about our, uh, our first purpose, to exalt God. To exalt means to lift up, to elevate, to put in your proper place. And so uh, when we speak of exalting God, we, speak, uh, we are speaking of worshiping Him, ascribing to Him, Uh, the proper praise, the praise that he deserves. And so today, I hope to show you from Ephesians chapter 1 that the church was created specifically to exalt and praise God. So turn turn with me to Ephesians 1, and you're all about to laugh at me because my Bible is sitting right down there on the pew, and I need to go grab it. So turn to Ephesians 1. I apologize. All right, we're good now. We're back in business. All right, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, through Jesus Christ, 
according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So Paul here is offering blessing and praise to God, to God the Father of Jesus Christ, right? And so verse 3, it explains the kind of blessings that God has bestowed on his people, right? He says that these were given to us in Christ. They are spiritual blessings. They, they extend from the heavenly places. So we enjoy these blessings because of our connection with Christ. He is the means by which we can receive these blessings. We are blessed in Christ. And that language of spiritual and, and heavenly places, it tells us these are not material blessings that are promised here. He has not blessed us with every blessing here on earth, but every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So this is not a promise necessarily to prosper us uh, materially in this life, but tells us that we will receive much, much greater blessing spiritually. And they extend from the heavenly places because that is where Jesus is. He is reigning and ruling from the right hand of the Father. So Paul explains kind of the nature of these blessings there. They're spiritual blessings. And then he goes on to list what these blessings actually are. And first, Paul tells us that God chose us. Us, you and me, us, those who are chosen are believers. And then there's three phrase, three phrases, rather, that define or qualify this choosing. In him, before the foundation of the world, and that we would be holy and blameless before him. So we are chosen in him, in Christ. Our choosing, our being chosen, is rooted in Jesus. He is the means by which we experience the blessing of God's choosing. So we're chosen in Christ, and that choosing was done before the foundation of the world. Before you or I lived, before God created everything that we see around us, God's choosing of us was already a part of his perfect purpose and will. And I want you to recognize the implications of that. God knew everything you would ever do, every mistake, every sin. He knew that you would be inclined towards rebellion against God, prone to disobedience. Yet he still created you and chose you. He loved you and chose you despite your sinfulness despite the wickedness that would take root in your heart. I mean, the depth of God's love for us is mind-blowing. While we were yet sinners, God loved us and sent Christ to die for us. And further than that, his choosing of us was intended to lead us, uh, lead you and I to live lives that are blameless and holy before God. Ephesians 2 tells us that God prepared good works for us, for his people beforehand that we might walk in them. So God lovingly chose you and I so that we would not remain enslaved to our sin, but instead that we would be set free, that we could walk in holiness before him, that we could live a life that was pleasing and honoring to God. He chose a people to be holy before him. Not only were we chosen in these ways, but verse 5 tells us that in God's love for us, he also predestined us. He predestined us to be adopted by God as his sons through Jesus Christ. So just as God chose, he also predestined. And these words, they're kind of like cousins, right? They're, they're related, but they're not quite identical. So chose is simply the act of, of selecting, of choosing. He picked something, and then predestined is 
a little bit more nuanced. It is the idea of, of actually predetermining the course of something. You see the difference? One is simply selecting, the other is predetermining the course that something carries out. So before anything else existed, before God created, he predestined you and me to be his sons, his children. Ladies, don't be put off that I keep saying he adopted you as sons. That's a good thing. Uh, it's just, it's language that conveys that all of us, believers, male or female, have been brought in to the family of God. That we are now his children. And because we are his children, we've been promised an incredible inheritance. But this adoption, it says, it was done according to the purpose of his will. So that means that God is the initiator of our salvation and adoption. Not you and me. God is the one who initiates. It's not predicated on our goodness or badness, whether we would one day believe. It says very clearly it was done according to the perfect purposes of God. Your salvation was a part of the eternal and perfect plan of God from the very, very beginning. In today's time period, adoption, usually it follows foster care. That's, that's generally the, the most common way someone's adopted. It follows through the foster care system. And, and while they're in that foster care period, the child's biological parents, they maintain some level of contact with their child, sometimes. Uh, oftentimes, they still have chances to come in and, and see them and visit, and you get to see your children. And then depending on the kind of adoption, that contact with the biological parent can continue, even after they've been adopted by a new family. But in Paul's context, there was no foster care. There was no adoption and, and continuing to see your children. Adoption in that day was a hard break from your old family. It was a total cut from who you once were to the new family you had been brought into. When a child was adopted, that new family took on all of his debts. Everything that was bad that this child had done becomes now a part of this new family. It's a totally new identity. And that new father, in the eyes of the law, was his biological father. That is what God has predestined us for. He has adopted us as his own. He has cut our ties to our former life and given us a new life to live as his children. When you put your faith in Jesus, you are no longer the same person you were. You are brought out of your old life into the family of God so that you can live a life in the spirit, so that you can bear spiritual fruit that pleases and honors God. We're removed from our life of sin and we're empowered to live a life of holiness. And we may still choose, we often do still choose, to indulge in sin at times, the sinful habits of our former life. But as children of God, that sin no longer grips us. It no longer has an actual hold on us because we've been set free from that. This adoption is one of the many blessings that Paul was talking about at the very start. God has bestowed this upon us. He's chosen us and he has predestined us because he loved us. But there's another, there's another motivation to all of this. Look again at, at verse 6, because that's where you find the ultimate purpose of God's choosing and predestining. God chose and predestined us to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us with in the beloved in Christ. So number one, if you're taking notes, 
we were chosen and predestined to exalt God. That's the overarching purpose here. All of this builds to this, to praise the glorious grace of our God. He did all of this so that we would praise him for the incredible grace he showed us through Jesus. All of God's work in calling us and choosing us and predestining us and adopting us, it was intended to lead to greater glory for himself. That's the end goal of God's work. So did God choose us because he loves us? Absolutely. Did he desire to save us because he is a merciful and gracious God? 100%. But at the same time, what we see here is that the ultimate end goal was to bring greater glory to himself. God's pursuit of his own glory is not at odds with his love and mercy toward us. He can do this in love and in mercy and still pursue his glory. And that idea, this idea that God is after his own glory, he's pursuing greater glory for himself, that's going to be repeated as we move through this text. So turn back to verse 7. Let's keep reading uh, through verse 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The Greek word here for, uh, for redemption, it's referring to deliverance. Deliverance from bondage or from slavery. And in the Roman Empire, a a slave could be redeemed for a certain price. The slave owner could uh, redeem his own slave. He could charge a price to the slave himself. And the slave could work up enough money and he could pay his own way out of slavery and bondage. Or uh, the slave's loved ones, his friends, they could pull their money together and they could buy him out of slavery. When it comes to our own slavery, our bondage to sin, we cannot pay that price. We are incapable of redeeming ourselves from that bondage. Nobody could do it because no one was perfectly righteous. Every single one of us was enslaved to sin with no hope of freedom until Jesus stepped in. Because Jesus stepped in and he paid that redemption fee. He paid the price through the shedding of his own blood. And it's based on his sacrificial work on the cross that we can be set free, that we have that redemption. And it's based on that same shed blood that we experience the forgiveness of our sins as well. The punishment of sin is death. And God being a just God requires that that penalty be carried out. But in his mercy, he allowed for a stand-in, for a substitute to come in and pay that penalty for us. That was the purpose of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. The people of God could offer up an animal in their place as a sacrifice in order to be forgiven from their sin. And these sacrifices, they reminded the people of God of just how grotesque and destructive sin actually is. And further than that, they pointed forward to a much, much greater sacrifice that would only need to be made one time. And that was Jesus, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. 
And as the perfect spotless lamb of God, his sacrifice was sufficient to be the last, the final sacrifice. No more substitutes were needed because he was perfectly sinless, because he was fully God and fully man. His sacrifice was totally sufficient. And anybody who puts their faith in Jesus can be forgiven on the basis of that sacrifice. So just like we saw the blessings of being chosen and predestined, the blessings of our redemption and our forgiveness, they're the same way. They're a result of God's grace being poured out on us in his wisdom and insight. That means that the death of Jesus was not an audible. It was not a backup plan. It wasn't a Hail Mary because we messed up all of God's other plans. In God's infinite wisdom and insight, he always planned to redeem and forgive us. Doing that through the death of his own son. Before we were created, before the foundation of the earth, God had already decided he was going to send his son to shed his blood for each of us. Verse 9 tells us clearly that this was the plan and the will of God. It says that the mystery of God was revealed, that the plan was a mystery for so long because God's people didn't know how he would redeem his people. They knew that he promised you, but they didn't know what that looked like. But now that Christ has come, that mystery has been revealed because he is the centerpiece of the plan. Everything in all of history is building to and pointing toward Jesus. But look at verse 10 again. The plan of redemption and forgiveness that was set in motion in Christ, it was set in motion so that at the fullness of time, the proper time, all things on heaven and on earth would be united to Christ. So again, the plan here was that everything that exists would be subjected under the perfect authority and reign of Jesus. So even our redemption, our forgiveness that, that Paul's talking about here, it was a part of a larger plan to exalt Jesus, to exalt him over and above everything else, to set Jesus in his proper place as ruler of all things. So that's number two. We were redeemed and forgiven to exalt Jesus over everything. We've been chosen, predestined, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, and all of that was so that God would be praised and honored all the more. But we're not done yet. There's more blessings here that we still got to talk about. Let's finish reading this passage, verses 11 through 14. <clears throat> In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. <clears throat> so this inheritance that is, is mentioned here in verse 11, that is our right to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It is our right to be welcomed into the family of God. It's our right to all of the blessings that Paul is writing about in Ephesians chapter 1. So in other words, you could say that our inheritance is our salvation. And this inheritance was something, again, we were predestined to receive. And the point today is, is not, I know I've been hitting some of these things a little bit, but the point today is not to focus on the doctrine of election. But we also can't ignore Paul's words here. 
Because we were not predestined according to our merit, but according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God's work of predestination is not based on us or the faith that we may or may not one day have. What it comes down to is the purposes of the Lord to the counsel of his perfect will. It is a matter of God's mercy and grace, not whether or not we deserve that mercy and grace. And I will say, I don't believe that God's work of predestination undoes or negates human responsibility, but that's a topic for another day. We don't have time to get into all of that. But Paul's language is very, very clear here. We were predestined according to the perfect counsel of a perfect God. But what is the goal of this inheritance, our salvation? We've seen it already, and we see it again in verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. The ones who were the first to hope in Christ, that would be the Jewish believers, like, like Paul or the disciples, the ones who were the first to believe that Jesus was the Messiah before the gospel had gone out and spread all over the world and spread to the Gentiles. The salvation of these Jewish believers was a gift of God's mercy and grace, an unimaginable blessing to them. But Paul says very clearly, it was done for the praise of his glory. It was done to bring greater glory to the Lord. And that same truth is repeated again in verses 13 and 14. We heard the truth of, uh, we heard the word of truth. We believed in the gospel. And when we believed, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So every person who puts their faith in Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit that enables us to live a life pleasing to God. And Paul writes here that we have been sealed with the Spirit, that he's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire it. A seal was used to indicate ownership. So the Spirit's presence in our life and the fruit that he produces, it demonstrates to the rest of the world, we belong to Jesus. We belong to the family of God. We are not citizens of earth. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The Spirit is the guarantee. Right? You could say that, uh, you could translate that word as down payment. He ensures our full inheritance. If any of you have purchased a home, and I know many of you have, you very likely had to put some kind of down payment down on that home. When you put a down payment down on it, it locks you in. It shows that you truly are invested to buying that house. Because you're not going to back out, because if you back out, you lose that initial investment. It comes at a great loss to you. So you can't back out. You are locked in. You've got to see things through. The Holy Spirit is God's down payment on each of us. All of these blessings that Paul writes about in this chapter, to some extent, we enjoy them already. But man, we are going to enjoy them to a much, much greater extent when Christ returns. And so Jesus, in his absence, sent the Holy Spirit as a promise that he's coming back as a promise that he's going to see this through. He will come back for his investment. He's going to return for his people, and when he does, we will experience our inheritance and our salvation to the fullest extent. But one final time, Paul repeats again, all of this was done to the praise of his glory. So we were saved and sealed to exalt God. To bring him greater glory. That's number three. We're saved and sealed to exalt God. Ephesians 1 walks us through this incredible plan. 
this incredible plan that God has to just lavish us with his mercy and grace to save us despite the fact that we were desperate, hopeless, rebellious sinners. It is awe-inspiring to read this passage and see what God has done for us, to see all the ways that he has blessed us in Christ. But we can't forget that all of this goodness that has been shown to us, it is ultimately for God's glory. This is consistent with what we see in the Old Testament with the people of Israel. In Isaiah 43, God is speaking of Israel and he says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. It's always about God's glory. God's plan to create a people for his own glory, it was in place a long time before the church came to be. But it continues today in the church. This church and every other true local church, they exist chiefly to bring honor and glory to God. We exist for the purpose of exalting the name of Jesus. We were chosen, we were predestined, we were redeemed, we were saved, we were sealed, and all of it to the praise of his glory. Nobody else's. The church exists to exalt God. That's the big idea from this text. The church exists to exalt God. And for some of you, that might not sit well with you. That idea that God is pursuing his glory above anything else. On the surface, it may appear self-serving, self-seeking, selfish, even prideful maybe. Why is it right for God to pursue his own glory? And if you're wondering that, that's okay, because I've wondered that in the past before as well. But I want to pose a different question to you. Who is worthy of glory? Who is worthy of that glory in the first place? Is there anybody other than God truly worthy of praise and honor and glory? If you read Ephesians 1, the answer has to be no. Look at what he has done on our behalf. All glory belongs to him in the first place. When we exalt ourselves or we worship any other kind of idol in our life, it's wrong because what we're doing is we're robbing God of the glory that only he deserves in the first place. God can rightly pursue his own glory because all glory rightly belongs to him. So God created the church to ascribe to him the glory and honor and praise that he is rightly due. So if God is chiefly concerned with his own glory, what does that mean for us as his church? And as we finish up over the next few minutes, I'd like to offer uh, just two points of application here. Uh, so number one, the church is not about us or our preferences. Church is not about us or our preferences. There is nobody in this room who will agree with what we as a church do 100% of the time because churches are full of people and people are full of opinions and preferences. And most often, those opinions and preferences do not perfectly align. When you get a big group of people together like this, it's inevitable that opinions and preferences are going to clash, and it's going to create some kind of tension. There's a guy named Tom Rayner. He's a former pastor. Now he, he runs a ministry where he evaluates the health of churches, and then he gives feedback on how they can improve and make things a healthier church. Uh, he's written a lot of books, and he has a blog where he gives advice to pastors. He, he's a great guy. He's a very faithful guy. <clears throat> he had a blog post several years ago, 
and he listed 25 of the silliest reasons that he had seen churches argue or split over. It is a great read, church. Um, I don't have time to list all of them for you. If you'd like the rest of the list, you can email me. I'll send it to you. But I picked out my top five to share with you. So the first one, one church he was working in uh, had a 45-minute heated discussion between the church leadership over whether the church filing cabinet should be black or brown and whether it should have two, three, or four drawers. 45 minutes. Another one he saw was, was a group within the church uh, getting frustrated. They, they kind of rallied together and they created a petition to be passed around the church. And this petition was to have all church pastors and church staff clean shaven. I don't know the outcome of that petition, but it happened. Another church had a major fight because they switched to a stronger blend of coffee. Wait for it. And after much debate, there was a split over that. Members of the church left because they changed the kind of coffee. Two more. These are gold. I'm telling you, you'll want the whole thing. Email me. I'll send you the whole list. Another church had a, a great dispute over banning black-colored T-shirts because black is the color of the devil. Is anybody wearing a black T-shirt in here? I don't see any. Good job, guys. <clears throat> and then my personal favorite. Another church had another great dispute over whether or not to install restroom stall dividers in the women's room. That's nuts. Church, if you ever attend a different church and they don't have stall dividers in the restroom, please leave. <laughs> that is not a fellowship you want to be a part of, I promise. <laughs> these are so absurd. Like It feels like these couldn't be real, but I assure you they are. I have seen in my own ministry, I've been in, in several different churches now, and I've seen arguments as ridiculous as these. Not here at Redemption so far, and Lord willing, we won't see anything like this, but it does happen. <laughs> it does happen. <laughs> this list is laughable, it's absurd, but, but this is what church devolves into when we start exalting someone other than Jesus. When we start to exalt ourselves and believe that it's about us and our opinions and our preferences, this is what happens. When our gathering together becomes about our preferences, it inevitably leads to disunity and discord that will be crippling to the church. We are not here to be top dog. We are here because Jesus is top dog. Churches thrive when they are unified around exalting the right person. Jesus Christ, period. And this is something all of us need to guard ourselves against because all of us have a tendency to make a huge deal about our opinions and preferences. We want to make them primary. But when we do that, unity leaves us to make way for division and discord. Somebody might think our worship is too contemporary. That's perfectly okay. There's nothing wrong with you thinking that. There's nothing wrong with you wanting to worship corporately with your preferred style of music. And at the same time, there's somebody who might think that our worship is not contemporary enough. They, don't want, they want less traditional music. And again, that's okay for you to want that. It's okay for you to want to worship with the style of music that you love. 
these desires and these preferences are not a problem in and of themselves. But they become a problem when that becomes the primary focus. Whether it's music, whether it's paint color, whether it's whatever else you want to slot in there, stage design. Church is not about our preferences. It is about exalting Jesus. And when we are willing to argue and fight and divide over things like music preferences, paint color, whether the pastors can grow a beard or be, be clean-shaven, it divides us. If those things can divide us, it's because we're not exalting Jesus. We're exalting ourselves. We exist to exalt Jesus. Number two, the church exalts God through obedience. I want to read one more verse for you. Romans 12, 1. It should be on the screen as well, but uh, it's just one verse, so you can try to turn there, but I'll probably beat you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. When we hear the word exalt, or when we think of what it means to worship, we often uh, think of things like what we're doing today. We come together and we sing some songs, we pray, we read the Bible, and those things are worship. Those are worshipful acts. But worship is much, much more than that. And Jesus made this clear when he rebuked the Pharisees because he told them, you're honoring God with your lips, but your hearts are far from God. Worshiping is way more than showing up on a Sunday afternoon. And if we aren't careful, we will end up very much like the Pharisees, offering outward actions and acts of service that are devoid of any true worship. And it may look good on the surface, but inwardly our hearts will be very, very distant from Jesus. In the Old Testament, worship was centered around the sacrificing of animals, the temple. But at the coming of Jesus... With his death and resurrection, it marked a major shift because Jesus fulfilled and brought to an end the sacrificial system. Now, God's word calls us to make a different kind of sacrifice. Paul urges us here, based on the mercies of God, based on all that God has done for us in Christ, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. He says, this is our spiritual worship. We don't offer animal sacrifices to exalt and worship the Lord. We offer ourselves, our own lives, in submission to the will of God. There was a church leader in the 4th century. Uh, his name was John Chrysostom. And I, I love what he had to say about this verse. I want to read a very brief paragraph here. It says, And how is the body, it may be said, to become a sacrifice? Let the eye look on no evil thing, and it hath become a sacrifice. Let thy tongue speak nothing filthy, and it hath become an offering. Let thine hand do no lawless deed, and it hath become a whole burnt offering. God wants a more holistic kind of worship from us. He is not looking for random acts of worship scattered throughout the week. He wants your entire life to be one long giant act of worship. One act that exalts him above everything else. Our bodies here, when Paul's using that term bodies, it's not just our physical bodies, it's everything. Every word we say, every thought that we think, every action we take, every desire we have needs to be an act of worship that exalts God. Every facet of our life is focused on bringing him glory. 
And that's what Jesus said in the Gospels. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your strength, your soul, and your mind. With everything you have. Romans 12 calls us to be a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable. Ephesians 1 told us that we were chosen to be holy and blameless before him. In these two passages and many others throughout the Bible, God is calling his people to a life of obedience. That is chiefly how we exalt him in our lives. When you go into work and you work hard to do the best job that you can because God has asked you to do all things for the glory of God, that is a sacrifice pleasing to God. When lying would make your life easier, but you tell the truth instead because God has asked you to be honest, you exalt God. When you're patient with your children instead of lashing out in anger, that is just as much worshiping God as it is if you got both hands raised in our worship service. Kids and students, when you are loving to your annoying sibling or you're respectful when your parents seem unreasonable, that is your spiritual worship to God. I love the amen there. <laughs> that had to have been a parent. <laughs> when we reject our natural inclination to sin and instead choose obedience, we exalt God because we are elevating God to the place of primary importance in our hearts and in our lives. We're putting him in the place he deserves. When we align ourselves with God's word and his ways, we acknowledge his rightful place as God. We acknowledge our rightful place as subjected to God. He is the highest authority, and he alone is worthy of worship and obedience. God has created his church to exalt him and lift up his name. That is what we aim to do here. We as a church must strive to exalt him in our services, in our building, at work, at school, at soccer practice, in our community, everywhere we go. This is what we're doing because this purpose is all-encompassing. God is after our entire being, our whole heart. And this is how we do it. We exalt God through daily obedience and continually submitting ourselves to the truth of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not saved us and then left us to our own devices to figure out what it is that you might have for us. But we thank you that you have made it so clear in your word what you have called us to be and how you have called us to live. And God, I pray that this church would take seriously what your word has to say, that everyone in here would be willing to set aside their own preferences, their own desires to say, no, we will lift up the name of Jesus. I pray that exalting the name of Jesus would be first and primary in every one of our hearts and in everything that this church does. In Jesus' name, amen.